0: invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll mention Corinth in a minute, uh, but, or you have the passage printed there in the, uh, the worship folder. It's been a few weeks since we were last together in 1 Thessalonians. So let me remind you a little bit of the, the background of, of what was going on in this letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary that ever lived. And he and two companions, uh, Silas and Timothy, came for the first time into the city of Thessalonica in the summer of 50 AD. Thessalonica was a very, very important city. It was a, a center of commerce. And as was Paul's custom, they would go to the, to the Jewish synagogue, the, the teaching center, the community center for the Jews. And on three consecutive Sabbaths, the book of Acts tells us. It gives all the details about this in Acts chapter 17. Paul would uh, teach for three consecutive Sabbath days in the synagogue. And he, it tells us he used the the scriptures to show that the Messiah had to suffer and die and that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, even after just three weeks of this, three days over three weeks, uh, Luke in recording the book of Acts tells us that a number of the Jews believed in Christ including a large number he says of God-fearing Gentiles so Jews and Gentiles are being converted they're believing in Christ and as always happens then and now whenever there's a response to the gospel there's a reaction against that response and so opposition arose within the synagogue against Paul's teaching, so Paul had to go elsewhere and a man named Jason, who apparently had come to faith in Christ, he, he invites Paul to come and use his house to, as a base for teaching. So Paul goes there for a few more weeks and then the opposition increases and the opposition against Paul and Silas and Timothy and their message. They go to the city magistrates and they say, hey, these people are troublemakers. They, they're going to cause revolt within the city. They just exaggerate the whole thing. The magistrates don't know what to do. So they bring Paul and Silas and Timothy in. They're going to imprison them. They're going to put them in jail. And Jason and some of the other uh, companions raise money, pay the bail, and get Paul and them out of there. And then under the cover of darkness, they send them away. The three of them move on to the city of Athens and ultimately to the city of Corinth. While they are in Corinth, they want to know how the Christians are doing, the young Christians they left in Thessalonica. So Timothy goes back and he meets with them and then he comes to Corinth to report what's going on. And it's good news. The church, the body of believers, this local church, individually they're growing in Christ. They are growing as a local church to such an extent, he says, they're even bearing witness, they're continuing to do missionary work to those around them. And so they're elated at this and Timothy also says, but they've got a lot of questions, such as, well, one of the questions they have is, uh, some of them have died. And they want to know, when Christ returns, will there be an advantage for us who are alive at that time? If we're alive when he returns, will we be in a more advantageous position than our brothers and sisters who died before us? So Paul sets about writing a letter to address that and other issues, and that letter is 1 Thessalonians. This is the letter Paul wrote from Corinth back to them to deal with some of those questions. Now I'm not going back to review what we've covered up to chapter two, verse thirteen. But I want us today to look primarily at verses thirteen and fourteen of chapter two, though I'll read all all four verses here through sixteen. Hear God's word. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are privileged through all humanity to have your word in our language that we can read, that we can study on our own and now together without fear of opposition. Uh, To whom much is given, much is required. Help us to be hearers who are doers of the word and not hearers only. In Christ's name, amen. Paul expresses this word of gratitude in verse 13, that that they are thankful that when they went to Thessalonica, that the people received their message not as man-made, but as from God. The most common term in the New Testament for the word to preach is a word that means to proclaim. And so earlier in verse 9, Paul says that we came and we preached the good news, the gospel, to you. We proclaimed it to you. Now, that's a formal term to proclaim, and that was true then, and it should be true now, that the role of a Bible teacher is not to just have a fireside chat about my own opinions, but that it's a proclamation of what God has said. So in a sense, it would have been like when Paul and Silas and Timothy entered Thessalonica, that first Sabbath day when they went to the synagogue. It it would have been a proclamation like, we want you to know, we are here to proclaim to you, That we want you to know and God wants you to know that there is a creator God who made everything and he made all people and you and I and everyone is made in his image and he created us to have perfect community perfect fellowship with him but that perfect fellowship was broken when our ancient foreparents disobeyed him and the punishment for the breaking of God's law was death And yet, even when God punished them, he promised to send a redeemer, a messiah, who would come to restore that fellowship with him. That future redeemer was named Jesus Christ, and he came and he lived a perfect life. He obeyed God's law in every respect, and then he allowed himself to be arrested and went through the mockery of a a false trial and then was crucified. Three days later, he was raised physically and bodily from the grave. And for a period of 40 days, he appeared to hundreds, if not a few thousand people. And then the last commandment that he gave his closest followers is that they were to go into all the world, to all nations, to tell people what God had done. And that for all who will repent and believe in Christ, they are given forgiveness and new life and the promise of heaven. This is what we proclaim to you. This is the good news. Now that did not originate, that message did not originate with Paul, or with Timothy, or with Silas, and it doesn't originate with us today. It is the Word of God. It is a message that's from God, and they heard it as such. So the question we have to ask today, and that is asked all around us if you think about it, is this man's Word about God, or is it God's Word about man? I mean, that's the key question, isn't it? For any person alive today that can speak and understand and have literate at all, is this man's word about God or is it God's word about man? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Years ago, when the New English Bible was published, one was sent to the Library of Congress. And a person in the Library of Congress wrote back to the publishers and said, uh, who do we list as the author? That's still the question today, isn't it? Who do we list as the author? So let me give you some general observations about the Bible. Because as Paul said, you received it as the Word of God. It didn't become the Word of God as you heard it. It didn't become God's Word as it influenced your thinking. It was objectively the Word of God that we proclaimed. Here's some general observations. Until the latter 1800s, The Christian church all around the world was unified in the doctrine that the Bible was from God. There may have been arguments and divisions about baptism and church government and a variety of other things, but not about whether the Bible was God's word. So what happened? Well, in the latter 1800s, a school of thought arose called modernism or liberalism don't think political terms i'm talking theological terms and it originated in germany which if you if you think about it is kind of scary where the home base of the reformation with martin luther within just a few hundred years is producing some of the worst stuff poison in the in the christian church but anyway it originated in germany and it came up and grew up during a time of great optimism, a belief in unlimited human progress. And it viewed the Bible, it came to view the Bible simply as a collection of human writings. Good literature in some cases, and inspired in the sense that Shakespeare and Rembrandt and Handel, we would say, well, that's very inspiring, that was inspired. And they summed up the religious teaching of the Bible with this phrase, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And they believe that human reason is all-sufficient, that we can, through our reason and intellect, we can understand everything that's there, so anything that's not compatible with human reason, we throw out. Supernatural, miracles, all that's just tossed out. And it was very optimistic. Now, that school of thought, almost crashed and burned in 1914 with World War I, because that view of this unlimited human potential came came to a crashing end for many. In response to modernism, there arose another school of thought that's very complicated, but I wanna give you some of the basic ideas, of neo-orthodoxy. The word neo means new, orthodox means accepted teaching. This was the thinking of neo-orthodoxy, the new accepted teaching. It saw the inadequacy of liberalism. And it understood that human progress was not unlimited. And human reason was not always sufficient. But they viewed that there were ethical things in the Bible that needed to be known. So a person must experience God. And, but this experience was on a different plane. Let me explain it this way. That there were two levels or two stages of truth. At this stage is scientific, mathematical, objective truth, that which we know through science and so forth. Here is religious truth, belief about God, reading the Bible. The only way to get from here to here is through a leap of, speak to me, leap of faith, which basically was you've got to just disengage your mind in the religious arena and accept it. So where, here's, here's how it plays out. And if you grew up in a church, any mainline church, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, uh, Catholic, uh, Episcopalian, okay, they've all been influenced by neo-orthodoxy. So this may be, your, it may be your background right now. This may be your understanding. But because here's how it works out. It's not, the stories of the Bible, it, the, the emphasis is not whether it happened. That's irrelevant, according to Neo-Orthodoxy. It's what is God saying to you through that story? It doesn't matter whether Jesus came out of the grave or not. Did he, ra- did he, raised in the, he was raised in the hearts of his followers. They believed he was alive. Uh, whether a man was swallowed by a big fish, whether God created uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, it's, that's not important whether it happened. In their view, it probably didn't happen. What is God saying to you? A few years ago, I attended a funeral here in town and at a church. I did not know the pastor. I'd met him, but I didn't really know him. I never heard him speak. And I quickly, during the sermon, it was obvious during the message, he's neo-orthodox. Neo- so later that day, I, I went to exercise and I saw a friend of mine that I've known for many years who attends that church. And I said, hey, I heard your preacher today. He said, yeah. Uh, He said, yeah, he's a real nice guy. I said, yeah, I'm sure he is. Do you understand the school of thought he's coming from with the Bible? He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So I I explained this to him. I said, he's neo-orthodox. And therefore, the question is not whether something happened and that's irrelevant, it's just what, what do you feel about it? Now, in their view, the Bible can be historically false but religiously true. So you could ask a new orthodox person, do you really believe Jesus rose from the grave? Yes. If we had put a video camera in front of that tomb that first Easter morning, would it have recorded anything? No. (laughs) He rose in the hearts. Well, is that a middle ground? Is this recovering what modernism, y'all still with me? All right, we're going to come back to First Thessalonians, believe me, in just a moment before we come to the Lord's table. Trust me, this is all a big parenthesis. So is it, a, is it a middle ground? No, basically adopted the modernist, the liberal view of the Bible. It's not true. It, it just used religious jargon around it. So they say it contains the Word of God. I was in a church, another church, not long ago. and It was another funeral. We all go come to think of it. And the pastor that I know he stood up and he said I'm going to read from John's gospel. Listen for the word of God. I'm like, oh great. There it is. It's not the word of God, it may become the word of God for you. Am I making any sense? This is dangerous. This is real dangerous because it uses the same terminology but it means something totally different. And so if it doesn't become the word of God for you, it's not the word of God. That is not what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. You received from us, not the word of men, but the word of God, objective. I was eating lunch with a Jewish rabbi one day, and he was trained in the liberal school. And I said, what do you think about the first three chapters of Genesis? And oh, no, I just figured it. What about the Ten Commandments? Are those bearing today? No, just general guidelines that we're to live by. And I laughed. And I said, I believe more of your book than you do. All right, so we have to ask, how can we know which parts of the Bible are trustworthy and what parts are not? If a person says, well, I don't believe in all that supernatural stuff, I just believe in the golden rule. Should love your neighbor as yourself, I would say, why? That may not be true either. If you're going to pick and choose, don't just you know, say that the ethical things are, are to be, be chosen. Uh, so what can you believe if you're going to make it all subjective? None of it would be true then if you, if you make that choice. And when we come to the Bible, salvation and history are intertwined. They're they're woven together. Uh, So it tells us there was a city of Bethlehem. There was a couple named Mary and Joseph. And it tells us who the rulers were. That is not the language of fable. You know, you can date it, you can look back and you can see and it tells distances between towns. It doesn't have that terminology like, like a myth. Uh, or or a fairy tale. So they're often intertwined. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, we're fools. Our message is in vain. The dead in Christ are lost forever. So if it's not historical, it's not believable. Then we're faced as new orthodox is uh, the fact, can other things become the word of God? Well, if the Bible, if God can make this the word of God, how about Shakespeare? How about poetry? How about some very moving dramatic movie that I may see? So, the conclusion from that point of view is the mind of man is the source of this, not the mind of God. So, Paul appeals here to the scriptures and being divine. Now, what's his main appeal? If you go back to verse 14, the main appeal is God's work is at work in you, it's transformative. His main appeal is not intellectual. His main appeal is, look what it's doing in your life. It's transformed you enough that you're standing up against opposition. That's what he tells them. So he appeals to that. It does change people. God's Word does change hearts and minds, and that results in changes in action. So while you cannot prove to another person this is the Word of God, I can tell them how unique it is. I can say it's a very unique book, and and lots of things about it, but the main proof comes and it transforms our lives. David, in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, verses seven through 10, one of the most uh, engaging passages in the Psalms about the scriptures, he says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I mean, what other book or anything would you use such adjectives as perfect, sure light pure clean true when it said god's word can revive the soul christian have you experienced i'm sure you have if you're a believer you 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 know what i'm getting ready to say that if you have felt your soul was empty and times you've been feeling like you're hanging on by your finger fingernails and you walked into a Bible study or you picked up your Bible to read it or you heard a sermon in person or on tape or something like that and and your soul was revived from God's Word you walked in in darkness and you walked out and you had hope again and you know that was the Word of God of course it's the Holy Spirit applying it to you but it was God's Word it wasn't another person you know that experience if you're a Christian And so we know this is God's word by the transformative power. And so Paul notes, and he rejoices, that it is at work in them. One result of God's word in every true believer is the strengthening of faith that enables us to persevere under hardship. And so they're experiencing persecution now, opposition, just like the churches in Judea, the Jerusalem church and others, they had all gone through, now the Thessalonians were going through the same thing themselves. And they rejoiced that that's obviously the word of God at work in our lives. One of the things that's been impressed on me since all this COVID stuff affected us so much, was as far as being able to gather, was uh, last year before we could meet again and before we started meeting outside, and we would come up here in video sermons or Bible lessons and, and I just longed for the fellowship of God's people. Having never been away from it so long, uh, the need for supportive fellowship. So that when we began to gather again, just to see other people's faces, to talk, to speak, even if it was just very general conversation, it was, you could almost feel it was refreshing, it was reviving. Uh, to be able to gather like that because we need the supportive fellowship and community with one another and that's what they had in Thessalonica they were standing firm I want to close with this as we come to the Lord's table you know the, the story of the mutiny on the bounty I mean you've probably read the book or one of the books or seen one of the movies that have been made a variety of times but let me add something you probably don't know uh, if you remember the story of Captain Bly and Mr. Christian and, and this, these British sailors that mutiny after his harsh ways in the Pacific, and true story, you know, happened in the, uh, the 1780s, and Bly and the, uh, the other sailors that went back with him, uh, some who had participated in the mutiny but went back with Captain Bly and, and miraculously arrived back in England. A number of those were hung once they were there uh, that had participated in the mutiny. Well, the ship, the bounty, it kept going. And in movies about this, it typically ends when they find land and then they set fire to the ship so it won't be found. Well, the number of people on the ship, once it continued on, there were nine British sailors, there were 10 women, there were six native men, and there was one girl who was 15 years old. And so they continued on, and they came to an island that's called Pitcairn, near Fiji. And on Pitcairn, they went had a small population of people that lived there. And they they arrived there. They burned the ship that didn't sink completely, but to try to cover their tracks. Immediately, once they were on land, one of the men found a way to make alcohol with a homemade steel. And by all accounts, it just became a a scene of debauchery and drunkenness and the worst in humanity. Several murders took place. Within a few years, there was one sailor left still alive. His name was Alex Smith. Several children had been born, most of the women were still alive, a few of the natives. All the other sailors from Britain were dead. He had found in a chest that they had taken from the bounty a Bible. And he began to read it, and he began to teach it to the others. In 1808, the first ship arrived there they had seen other ships but this was the first one that came to shore and it was a, it was a U.S. ship called the Topaz and when they arrived there no drunkenness no crime no, uh, no jails a growing colony all that had been influenced by the Christian teaching from that Bible now that's not automatic of course it's the Holy Spirit choosing to move But that's what Paul says, gives the assurance, it's the word of God. It's life transforming, just like it was those people that had never been exposed to it before. So it is with us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we would grow to be like David, to see your word as sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Uh, Help us, guard us from self-deception that thinks we're self-sufficient in our faith to uh, grow and to mature in you without intake from your word help us even when they're hard questions things that we don't know the answers about to trust you that one day we will know those answers and you'll explain everything then and we pray these things in jesus name amen